0: Hello, and welcome back to Endopod. If you're new here, this is Hepsi Xavier, and I'm a third year medical student. Welcome to Endopod's revision series. Each episode will cover revision material for those preparing for exams, or even just for those who are interested in learning the basics of endocrinology. In this episode, we will dive into type 1 diabetes, explore its pathophysiology, causes, symptoms, signs, diagnosis, and treatment. Let's start by taking a look at what type 1 diabetes is and why it's important that we educate ourselves about it. Type 1 diabetes is a chronic autoimmune disease in which the pancreas produces produces barely any or no insulin. The problem here is that we need insulin to live because it allows glucose in our body to be taken up into our cells and provide us with energy. This subtype of diabetes is also known as insulin dependent and makes up about 10% of all patients with diabetes. It affects both males and females equally and usually begins during adolescence, with a peak age of diagnosis being 10 to 14 years. But it can, in fact, occur at any age throughout life. Roughly 400,000 people are currently living with type 1 diabetes in the UK, including around 29,000 children, and the incidence is increasing. In order to understand the pathophysiology behind type 1 diabetes, you need to understand the endocrine pancreas and how it functions. This is covered in more depth in the other episode called the endocrine pancreas, so check that out before you listen to this. But for a brief over- overview, the part of the pancreas that is involved in type 1 diabetes is the endocrine pancreas. This is the part of the pancreas that produces hormones and it consists of structures called the islets of Langerhans. There are four types of cells in these islets. These are alpha cells, beta cells, delta cells and F cells and each secrete a different substance or hormone. The type that is important in type 1 diabetes is beta cells because they produce insulin. During digestion, carbohydrates are broken down into glucose and in order to provide us with energy, glucose needs to enter our cells. It does this with the help of insulin that is released from the beta cells. So what goes wrong in type 1 diabetes? Well, the simple answer is that there is T cell mediated autoimmune destruction of these pancreatic beta cells. The lack of beta cells leads to decreased insulin production and therefore decreased ability for our cells to absorb glucose from the blood. This means that more and more glucose builds up in the bloodstream as insulin is the only hormone in our body that can lower blood glucose levels. High blood glucose levels can then cause both short term and long term problems. As the patients cannot use glucose, this stimulates secretion of other counter counter regulatory hormones such as glucagon, cortisol, and growth hormone. These hormones, especially glucagon, promote gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis, and ketogenesis in the liver. And as a result, patients present with hyperglycemia and metabolic ketoacidosis. I think it's important to mention that insulin resistance, which is seen in type 2 diabetes, has no role in the pathophysiology of type 1 diabetes. The etiology of type 1 diabetes is not entirely known, but it is thought that it occurs as a result of an environmental trigger in a genetically susceptible individual so let's take a look at the genetics first there are multiple genes which predispose you to getting type 1 diabetes but it is thought that the major determinants are polymorphisms of class 2 HLA genes that are located on chromosome 6 HLA stands for human leukocyte antigen and it functions and its function is to help the immune system distinguish the body's own proteins from proteins made by viruses and bacteria. It has been found that HLA genes D3 and D4 present in 90% of children with type 1 diabetes. In terms of environmental triggers, there isn't too much that we know, know for certain about this, but currently it is thought that there are a variety of different things in the environment that can make it more likely for us to develop type 1 diabetes. These include chemicals, alteration of our gut bacteria in infancy as well as viral infection among viruses the strongest associations have been found with human enteroviruses and could help to explain why antibodies to certain viruses are high in some patients with type 1 diabetes so generally it is thought that both genetic and environmental factors act together and this is what causes the autoimmune destructions of beta cells eventually leading to type 1 diabetes Beta cell destruction occurs subclinically for months to years, and then, after roughly 80% of pancreatic beta cells have been destroyed, clinical symptoms begin to develop. Now that we know the process behind type 1 diabetes and what causes it, we need to know how to identify it. So, we're going to go over some of the symptoms and signs that are often present. Generally symptoms tend to come on quickly, over a few days or weeks, but of course there are exceptions to this and adult symptoms can be present for a few months before the patient is seen by a doctor. The common symptoms are polydipsia which is extreme thirst, polyuria or a lot of urine, blurred vision, weight loss and generalized weakness. The reason behind the polyuria is that the body tries to lower blood glucose levels by flushing that excess glucose out in the urine. High levels of glucose in the urine can then also lead to thrush because it creates a perfect breeding ground for the yeast to grow. Patients with diabetes are also just more prone to develop low-grade infections because high blood glucose levels can weaken the immune system defences. Patients also have symptoms of dehydration and acidosis such as abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting and tiredness. Some patients will present with a diabetic, diabetic ketoacidosis which is an acute complication of type 1 diabetes. But we'll talk about this later on in the episode. Signs of diabetes include keto- ketotic breath, this is breath that smells fruity or similar to nail polish remover, dehydration, tachycardia, tachypnea, and hypotension. It's also important to know the pre- that the presentation of type 1 diabetes in children. To help you remember this, we can use the four T's they stand for toilet, thirsty, tired, and thinner. If a child has any of these signs and symptoms, they should be taken to a doctor straight away because with quick diagnosis and early treatment, we can avoid them becoming seriously ill. So once you suspect that a patient has diabetes, it's time to make the diagnosis. So how do you go about doing this? Well, a diagnosis of diabetes can be made based on the following three criteria. Firstly, by one diagnostic blood glucose test in a symptomatic patient. Secondly, by two diagnostic blood glucose tests in an asymptomatic patient or no symptoms, and thirdly, by HbA1c levels. So, what are these diagnostic blood glucose tests? There are three of them. First is a random venous plasma glucose concentration of 11.1 or greater, secondly, is a fasting plasma glucose concentration of 7 or greater. And third is a plasma glucose concentration of 11 or 11.1 or greater 2 hours after 75mg oral glucose in a glucose tolerance test. As for hba one a diagnosis can be made if levels are over 48 mmol per litre. The, t- the term hba one c refers to glycated hemoglobin, a molecule that forms when hemoglobin joins with glucose in the blood. The amount of glyca- glycated hemoglobin and the amount of glucose in the blood are directly proportional. And because hemoglobin stays in the body for 8 to 12 weeks before it is renewed measuring hba1c can be used to reflect average blood glucose levels over that duration but you must be aware that a value of less than 48 does not exclude diabetes so it really needs a glucose blood test for proper diagnosis and hba1c is not always appropriate for diagnosis Um, for example, in children. Finally, in some circumstances, additional tests may be used to distinguish between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. These include a urine ketone test, GAD autoantibody tests, and C-peptide tests. So what does a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes mean for a patient and how can it be treated? Well, currently there is no actual cure for type 1 diabetes, but it can definitely be well managed and well controlled. The mainstay of treatment for someone with type 1 diabetes is insulin. All of these patients will require exogenous insulin either via injections or pumps in order to control their blood glucose levels. There are many different types of insulin including short, medium or long acting, and there are also many different insulin regimens, each specifically tailored to an individual and their lifestyle. It is important that the insulin is injected into subcutaneous fat and that injection sites are rotated in order to prevent lipodystrophy, which is when fat breaks up or builds up under the skin, under the skin and this can interfere with insulin absorption. I also just want to quickly mention a little bit about the management of type 1 diabetes during illness. It is important that the patient never stops taking insulin when they're ill, even if they're not eating. They should monitor their blood glucose levels 2-4 to four hourly and adjust insulin dose according to this. They should also test their urine or blood for ketones every 2-4 hours and maintain their carbohydrate intake by fluids such as fruit juice if, if they can't eat. And during illness, any patient with diabetes who is vomiting, dehydrated or ketotic should be admitted to hospital as soon as possible. It is important to talk about some of the short and long term complications that can result from type 1 diabetes. One short term complication is acute hypoglycemia. This is a blood glucose level less than 4 millimoles per litre and can be caused by multiple things including too much insulin, inadequate food intake or exercise. There may be signs and symptoms such as hunger, tremor, confusion and drowsiness but it can also be asymptomatic. Hypoglycemia can result in coma, seizures and permanent neurological deficits, so it's really really important that it's avoided by good blood glucose monitoring and compliance with an insulin regimen. And if it does happen, it needs to be treated promptly with administration of carbohydrates. On the other end of the scale is diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. This occurs when the liver converts excess fatty acids into ketone bodies for use by the brain and muscle. Lack of insulin depresses ketone body uptake, so they build up rapidly in the plasma and cause ketoacidosis. Symptoms and signs include nausea, vomiting, ketotic breath, rapid and deep breathing known as Kussmaul respiration and coma. DKA is a medical emergency and requires rapid administration of fluids and insulin in order to prevent complications such as cerebral edema. As for long-term complications, these centre around damage to blood vessels and generally occur in the setting of prolonged glycemic control. They include acceleration of atherosclerosis, which leads to increased risk of coronary vascular disease and cerebrovascular disease, and also include damage to small blood vessels which can lead to retinopathy, nephropathy and neuropathy. If you would like to hear about these in more detail, make sure to check Our episode where we'll talk about type 2 diabetes along with these complications. Finally, I think it's worthwhile to mention something about the rules surrounding driving when you have diagnosis of type 1 diabetes because this is something that will affect a lot of people. Now you absolutely can still drive if you have diabetes but you must inform the DVLA if you're on insulin. It's also important that you don't drive for 45 minutes after hypo and that you check your blood glucose within two hours of starting driving and two hourly on long journeys. And remember, these rules are in place to keep you safe. That concludes this episode on type 1 diabetes mellitus. I hope you've enjoyed it and keep an eye out for all of our other revision podcasts. Please follow us on our social media and as always, we're very grateful for the support. Before I go, I want to say a big thank you to Arabella Bapti, one of our charity coordinators who was involved in the making of this episode. Stay safe and happy. This is Hepsi Xavier, signing off.